Welcome to the Pokes Podcast. I'm Donovan Potts, multimedia producer for the College of Arts and Sciences at Oklahoma State University. Now we're starting out this episode with a pop quiz. And the question is, what does an Oklahoma accent sound like? Is it Midwestern, Southern, country, or a little of all of the above? Now it's all right, our guest today will give us the answer. Dr. Valerie Freeman is a professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders. She's also the director of the Sociophonetics Lab, and she'll explain what sociophonetics is in just a minute. But one of her most recent studies is on the Oklahoma accent, especially where it comes from, how it compares to other accents, and how people perceive it. We'll also discuss why someone's accent makes us think about them in different ways, why English is such a diverse and sometimes really confusing language, and how I've obviously never seen my fair lady. This is the Pokes Podcast. So first off, because I've promised our listeners that we would answer this, define this term, what is sociophonetics? Well, it's actually a kind of a hybrid term or a hybrid field. It's combining sociolinguistics and phonetics. And phonetics is the study of speech sounds, so how we make sounds, vowels, consonants, uh, how we perceive them, and then how we can measure their properties. So like the acoustics, the sound waves, um, pitch, duration, timing, how the different uh, vowel sounds resonate so that we can tell them apart. And then sociolinguistics is how language is used in a social context. So how people talk differently based on who they are, where they're from. Um, this could be things like demographics, like age or gender, ethnicity, where you're from. But it can also, we also talk differently as individuals in different situations, when we're talking to different people, when we're talking about different things. Sociophonetics is kind of the combination of these two things. It's concerned with how pronunciation varies based on these social uh, factors. Tell us a little bit about your background, like how you found this line of study originally and what drew you to it, what fascinated you about it, and made you decide that this is something I want to you know, dedicate my research and my basically your life to? Um, well, I, I was actually a psychology major in college, um, but I took a national exchange, which is something not a lot of people know about, but I highly recommend it. It's just like studying abroad or a, a, an international exchange program. Um, and lots of universities around the country uh, participate in it where you can uh, go to another school for a year um, so I'm from Idaho, and I was going to school in Idaho, and I did an exchange to Connecticut. So I got to go to Yukon for a year, um, paying my cheap tuition at home and um, getting the advantage of uh, the wider variety of classes that they had at Yukon. And there I took a class called Psychology of Language, and I discovered that there's a whole field where you can talk about talking and how people talk. Um, so I came back and I decided I was going to go to grad school in linguistics. And I took all the linguistics classes that Idaho offered. <laughs> um, and then I went to graduate school in Washington. And so my master's and PhD are in linguistics. And I specialized in phonetics and sociolinguistics. Um, I also did a postdoc in Indiana. And that brought me here. A lot of your research, just looking back on your kind of your CV and some of your other stuff, is a lot of it is based on accents, kind of specifically to within um, regions in different parts. Um, first off, what makes an accent? Like, what distinguishes 
you mentioned a little bit about vowel sounds and consonants, but what makes a, say, a Northeastern accent different than a Southern accent, different than a uh, Californian or West Coast accent? Well, that's a good question. There are a lot of things that are involved. Um, first, I have to say that linguists don't use the term accent very much. We prefer dialect, but um, dialect has a neg negative connotation in everyday life, so we also like the word variety. Um, but if we're being specific about uh, what linguists mean when they say dialect, um, everybody speaks a dialect of a language. So everybody has a dialect, everybody uses a dialect, uh, lots of people use more than one. Um, and it's just a variety. It's socially constrained, so the social groups that you're a part of talk a certain way. It could be based on where you're from, ethnicity, all the things we talked about already. But at any rate, usually when people talk about accent, they're thinking of pronunciation. And in English, different accents or dialects vary the most based on vowels. That's something that sociophoneticians study a lot, is kind of how our vowels sound, how they are arranged in relation to each other, how you pronounce different words. In New York, for example, and in much of the North, excluding the West, of the US and also in much of the South, there are two what we call low back vowels. There's a and a, but in the West and kind of the a little bit of the Midwest in between, there's only one vowel. So I'm from the West and I only have one vowel. I say a, I say lot and thought the same. That's the same vowel. And in most of Oklahoma, that's the case too. There's just one sound for all those words. But in other parts of the country, including New York, including the South, they're different. There's two different vowels. So you and I have one less vowel <laughs> than people in other parts of the country. Um, what gives us the accents that we're familiar with are the different ways that we pronounce some of those vowels. I could go on and on and on about Let's that. Do. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the short answer is for English, usually something to do with vowels. <laughs> I, I don't want to downplay your research. I don't want to downplay your knowledge or what you know. But can you listen to someone, uh, someone you don't know, and say, I can tell generally within a probably a specific range where you're from? Am I Henry Higgins? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Most linguists will say no, but this is my specialty, so kind of. Um, I can get kind of a region usually, but that's because I have studied regional accents pretty specifically. So your latest research is in um, Oklahoma accent. W mm -hmm. What makes an Oklahoma uh, dialect? Sorry, let me use yeah. the proper term there. Um, and the way I heard it described was, is it country versus Southern? And that may be, again, a little too overgeneralized, but um, can you explain a little bit about what that research is and what you're, um, what you're gathering from that? Yeah, um, well, what I started out, you know, I moved here only a couple years ago, and so I'm not from Oklahoma, but my ears hear Southern speech around here. My Northern ears or Western ears, you know, the accents around here, a lot of them sound Southern to me, but nobody said, we have a Southern accent. Nobody pointed to somebody else and laughed at their Southern accent. If they did that, they said country accent. And so I was thinking, well, what do you mean? What is country? What is that? I don't know, what is it? 
And so um, the studies that we're working on right now are just kind of trying to define what that means, um, what people think about Oklahoman accents, because we know from some past studies, you know, I can tell you all about the vowel system of Oklahoma, and it is kind of a mix. It's not um, totally Southern. There are lots of Southern features or features in common with other Southern dialects, um, but there are also features in common with the Midwest. And so it makes sense that there's kind of a mix, and it seems to me that Oklahomans don't see themselves as Southern, and so why would they call themselves Southern? Why would they call their speech Southern? And so country might be a label that applies in Oklahoma and some other places, but it's not necessarily the same as Southern. So I just didn't have a label for this because I wasn't from here. So we're kind of working on, you know, what does that mean to the people who use it? What are some of the specific characteristics of an Oklahoma accent that sets it apart from either the Midwest or the Southern? And is it really, are you seeing it as kind of being a blend of the two in some way? Yeah, it is a blend. Um, so I mentioned those two vowels, like in lot and thought, how they're the same. Uh, that's a Midwestern feature, not Southern. Um, but pin and pen, which I say different, P-I-N-P-E-N. -E For me, those are different vowels, pin and pen. Um, but around here, they're both pin or pin-ish. <laughs> Some vowel that's similar to pin and not pen for sure. That, um, having the I and E vowels be merged or the same um, before N and M uh, is a feature of the Midland. This kind of, if you go from Pennsylvania and take kind of a strip going west, and then once you get to the once you get to the west, kind of spread out throughout the whole west. That kind of stripe in the middle is called the Midland, and pin-pen merger is not found there. So pin-pen merger is a southern feature, but cot-cot merger is a Midland feature. So that's just one example of how Oklahoma has a very southern feature and a very Midland feature. Now, when you say cot, caught, you, you're looking, <laughs> I said it that way, you assume C-O-T versus C-A-U-G-H-T, correct? Right. I merge, so I say them the same. I don't have that awe vowel. I can make it because I practiced, hmm. but uh, it's not natural for me. Obviously, you do a lot of research in how we speak, but there's also a lot of research you do in how we perceive how others speak. And how do, how do we develop those perceptions? I mean, how do we make, you know, like we've talked about this on the podcast before with other people who have had like Australian accent. We say Australian accents sound cool and British accents sound smart. And New York accents sound tough. Where do those distinctions, where do we, where do we come up with those, I guess, stereotypes, for lack of a better word, about different accents and dialects? Well, we actually come up with them about the people that use them. So there's nothing inherently smart about I versus ah. But when a Southerner says time, they're stupid. Everyone just immediately thinks something, you know, maybe they're very friendly and hospitable, but they're probably not very smart. We just have that first impression that we know is unfair and it can't be true. An entire population can't be this way. But we have taken kind of the stereotypes that we have about the group of people that we think talks like that. And then we associate how they talk with those attitudes. Whatever group is in power, whoever's in charge socially, culturally, 
in government, money. However they talk is the best. And so whoever is in charge, they talk the best. And whoever's not in charge, minorities, people who are you know, not as rich or from parts of the country that for some reason we have these stereotypes about, however they talk is not the best. And so these associations are made not based on the sounds themselves, but other reasons that we view the people who talk that way. One of my stories I tell about involving accents and stuff, I grew up in central Illinois near St. Louis. So I think that is that qualify as the Midland area if you in your description earlier. Yeah. Okay. So I grew up there, lived in pretty much this area, you know, Missouri, Illinois, Oklahoma, my entire life. In 2015, I moved to Portland, Oregon. And right away after I moved out there, people would say, what part of the South are you from? <laughs> and I would go, oh, no, I'm from Illinois, which I don't consider South. And you just said earlier that people from Oklahoma don't consider them South. What is it specifically about a Southern accent that people go, well, no, I don't, I don't want a Southern accent. Is it specifically the Southern accent sound unintelligent? I'm not exactly sure how it came, how we came to have this stereotype about Southern speech. My guess is that it actually goes back to colonial times. Now, I'm just guessing. So the, the reason that we have such different uh, accents or dialects in this kind of, these kind of stripes across the country going, you know, horizontal stripes, is that the people who settled in, say, the Northeast uh, came from a different part of England than the English speakers came from a different part of England than the people who settled in the South. And already in England during the 16, 1700s, when there were lots of you know, migration establishing um, strongholds on the coast, already there were changes in the dialects for the different regions in England. And so they brought those changes with them. And then as they moved west, you know, they spread those changes too. And the economics of the time were really different too. Um, the economics of, say, New York and Boston was very different than the more agrarian um, industries in the South. And so my guess would be some sort of old tensions between the politics and uh, the types of people that were there to begin with. And so it could be something that doesn't make any sense today as to why we would have this attitude, but we've had it for a very long time. And what's interesting is that most um, you know, most parts of the country, if you ask someone, you know, where, where do people talk the best in this country? Most people will say, where I'm from. <laughs> if you're from the Northwest, they'll circle the Northwest. If you're from California or Michigan or Illinois, you would say, right here. But people from the South don't say that. They're also fully aware of this negative attitude and this negative stereotype about Southern speech. And they might say, oh, I know. Yeah, we don't talk. We don't talk right down here, or we don't talk the prettiest, or you know, whatever they might say. They're aware of this, and there is actually kind of as languages change over time. One of the changes is that young people in the South don't want to sound Southern anymore, and so especially if they're from the cities, um, a lot of those Southern features of you know strong Southern accents are starting to lessen or disappear, particularly in the cities in the South. Some would be very proud of the way that as kind of um, a marker of their identity. Mm -hmm. And this can be true of anyone anywhere. And the, this, 
the the accents that you think of that are, uh, you think of as the strongest, you know, might be New York, Boston, and something in the South. Mm -hmm. And the ones that the there's kind of large agreement across the country that we don't like something about that. Mm -hmm. They know that. And so they might say, yeah, it's not pretty. You might also think that a, an accent from Chicago is very strong. Mm -hmm. But we don't have this long-standing dislike of how people talk in, around the Great Lakes. In fact, historically, up until very recently, that's where, you know, that's the general region that you would go to or imitate or you know learn how to talk like people from mm -hmm. the Chicago area if you wanted to be on in the news mm -hmm. on TV or radio we still have that idea even though in the last 2 3 generations there've been a lot of changes in the way um, people pronounce their vowels mostly uh, around the Great Lakes region and you might not find um, you might not have the same attitude about how they talk, but we still have this idea that, you know, everywhere in the middle is, you know, we all talk nice mm -hmm. in, in, everywhere in the middle. <laughs> so you mentioned that accents are changing over time and they change over generations. Why is that? What causes those changes? Is it completely, you know, societal things? People realizing that, well, this sounds funny or this sounds different or just how language evolves or how and how speech evolves? Well, that is um, partly an unanswered question in the field, exactly how it happens or why it happens. Um, we do know that languages change all the time, everywhere. Some of the theories have to do with uh, kind of influential social changers and movers. You know, maybe they start to do something a little different and everyone says, they're cool, I want to be like them. And they start talking like them. Um, that seems to be one of the things that happens commonly with young people. But young people get older and then they go into the workforce and they start talking more conservatively, more professionally, less slang, and so on. Changes that we're not aware of happen over time from one generation to the next. We pronounce things a little bit differently from our parents and then our kids pronounce them a little bit differently. And so in two or three generations, you can have some big differences and you just keep going like that and over the generations we end up sounding totally different than you know Shakespeare did a few hundred years ago. But that's that's been a long time. But even over two or three generations we can see some changes. And there, there are a lot of reasons why it might happen but uh, it tends to be social. So as, uh, as a group is starting to change or as a different group comes into power or becomes uh, more socially influential or economically influential um, it can kind of change the tide of what's considered positive, good way of talking, a nice way of talking, a smart way of talking, a rich way of talking, and so on. Um, but it's not always a conscious change. You know, we just, we try to be like our peers, and when we're young, we try to be like the people we want to be like. And that can kind of ripple through society slowly, and for other changes, it, you know, we just, we don't know why. Why would you start pronouncing your vowel differently? Do you see the research moving in a specific direction? Like, do you see different dialects becoming more different or do you see them kind of coming together and one kind of singular American English, for lack of a better term, accent? Or is it splitting up even more as people kind of, I, I guess I'm using with just more mobility, people just moving about the country, picking up different things, as they said, you know, 
growing up in the Midwest, living in the Northwest for a few years or moving to Connecticut for a year or something where, you know, you're, you're picking up different things as you go and as you're in different social groups, different geographic groups. Well, both. So in some ways, regional accents are, um, a lot of their features are disappearing or blending, melding. Um, in sociolinguistics, the term is called dialect leveling, where you have um, dialects that come together and they kind of wash out each other's strong features, so to speak. Um, and that happened um, as the population moved west you know, now we're talking a couple centuries ago, where all those different stripes of accents that I talked about, kind of horizontal stripes across the eastern part of the U.S., they ended up mixing a whole bunch more once they got into the western part of the U.S. and spread out. And so much of the West is considered one dialect area, whereas Boston, small parts of Boston, even just neighborhoods of Boston, have a completely different accent or dialect from other areas nearby, very small regions. When dialects come into contact, lots of people speaking different dialects come together. Their dialects can level and they end up with um, similar features across you know, the whole mixed group. Today, that's a very reasonable thing to think that would happen. We're so much more mobile and we're connected with um, the internet and we're able, and we have TV and we can see how people talk and oh, we'll just change how we talk and we'll all end up the same. It's not happening though. We've had TV, we've had radio, and we don't talk like the people on TV. We don't change how we talk when we're growing up, when we're four years old. We don't talk like newscasters. We talk like our friends. We talk like the other kids at school. Um, and so some features of regional dialects are actually becoming stronger or more distinct. And it's just a constant, you know, every dialect, every language everywhere is always changing. And some of the features are becoming more distinct from each other, while others are leveling out. So some of your research, too, involves how people speak in certain situations. Could you explain a little bit about like different situations and how someone's speech changes in, in, a, in a specific situation? Sure. Um, well, you can just take this setting as an example. I'm in kind of professional, formal teacher explaining mode. I'm using the terms of my field, but I'm trying to define them and explain them and use terms that you know and the audience might know, but I'm still explaining things. I'm trying to sound like a smart professor, but I'm not trying to sound very cool. And I wouldn't talk this way with my friends. They wouldn't put up with this. Um, I wouldn't talk with this way at the bar. This would be totally inappropriate in a different setting. Um, I wouldn't talk this way to my grandmother. My grandmother wouldn't ever talk this way. A 15-year-old wouldn't ever talk this way. The situation, the setting, the audience, we all change and kind of the role or persona we're trying to portray all changes how we talk. You know, I'm using long sentences, some big words, but I'm, you know, trying to also explain them, kind of trying to walk the line between jargon, but definitely no slang. It's kind of a formal setting. Don't want to bring up too much slang. You know, I wouldn't even write this way. That would be a different thing. Trying to enunciate, pronounce things clearly, uh, talk slowly enough to be, to be clear and understandable. Um, but in a different setting, you know, with people who know we, me well and we know what, like, uh, we both know a lot about the topic or something very casual, 
I would talk much faster and less clear, and there wouldn't be any trouble understanding me because that's what you expect in that situation, that's what's appropriate. So it can really vary, it can vary by a lot of things, but we all do it. Is it strictly just societal constructs that say this is how you have to talk in this certain situation? Yeah, I mean, it's a language is a part of social interaction and social cohesion, and we have all kinds of rules for how you behave in different situations. And, you know, we also have a, a whole set of, like a subset of rules for how you use language in those situations. How you relate to people of different status or different power, you also, you don't just talk to them differently, but you also, you're supposed to look at them differently, you're supposed to dress differently for dif different situations, sit differently in formal contexts versus informal contexts, eat differently <laughs> if it's really formal versus really casual. I mean, everything we do, I guess, in a social, um, in different social interactions have kind of a set of social rules and language use is a big part of it. And how much of that is inherent versus how much is learned as one goes along? It's all learned. <laughs> uh, when we're little, we have to we have to learn these things. Um, usually, parents don't tell us, but sometimes they do. When we're breaking the rules, when we're young, when we're learning how we're supposed to act, um, parents and teachers might explicitly tell you. But a lot of the rules for learning language and how it's used in social context, nobody tells us. You just learn by being a part of it. You watch other people and you participate and other people indicate if you're being appropriate or not. How does the work you do tie into communication sciences and disorders? Like, How does it all come, in, come together? Because I think most people just, just tie it into speech pathology. Mm -hmm. um, how, does, how does your work tie into um, you know, helping other people learn how to talk? Like you said, the department cares about communication science and disorders, and you know, so the very first thing you need to know is how things work in order to know what to do when they're not working as you expect. Um, and kind of a key thing that I have been you know, kind of bringing to speech and hearing science is kind of trying to keep in mind or remembering, reminding, trying to look at the social aspect of communication if speech pathologists uh, you know, don't consider social interaction, um, then kids or adults who might have some other speech or language um, difficulties might not have all the opportunities for social interaction that would help them learn the social norms naturally. And so if speech pathologists are aware of this, you know, they can work on the kind of rules of social communication as well. Um, one uh, one good example would be for people who are on the autism spectrum. You know, social communication is a challenge for them and it has to be addressed explicitly. Whereas um, children, for example, who are not on the spectrum might pick these rules up just by interacting with other kids and observing uh, adults. But kids who are on the autism spectrum don't have the same way of kind of gathering that social information and learning from it. Um, so speech pathologists would need to be aware of that and include social communication as part of working with kids on the autism spectrum, for example. Like if we're talking about dialects and accents, I can give you a good example of something that speech pathologists should be aware of. Aware of. Uh, 
ethnolex. For example, uh, African American English is uh, is a common ethnolect that is found in many parts of the country, um, and it's just a variety spoken by you know an ethnic minority. Um, and if speech pathologists aren't aware of how African Americans speak in their community, uh, they might misinterpret the rules of African American English as failing to follow the rules of mainstream English. If we're thinking of them as all one dialect with one set of rules, uh, then African American kids would be um, treated when they're not needing therapy. So African American English has a complete set of grammatical rules. It's just that not all of them are the same as the rules of mainstream American English. And so if you're unaware of that, then you would treat the child when they don't need therapy. There's nothing wrong with their language system or their speech skills. They're just using a different set of rules. And if we're not aware of them, then we would be, in a sense, discriminating against them because of the rules that they learned naturally from their community. You know, if we're unaware of these differences or we think that people who talk differently are being illogical or lazy or stupid without, you know, if we don't know, they're, they just have a different set of rules. You know, we wouldn't say that French speakers are stupid because they don't follow English grammar rules. And it's similar um, for different dialects. It's just that if we don't realize how different different dialects are from our own, then we'll be thinking of them as participating in the same rules being unaware that they have different rules. And what's difficult with dialects of within what we consider one language is that so many things are similar that it's reasonable to think, without knowing otherwise, it's reasonable to think that everything should be the same. For example, in mainstream American English, um, in formal context, you're not supposed to use more than one negative. You know, no double negatives. You can't say, I, I ain't got none. That's too many negatives. For formal writing, but in speech, in casual settings, people do that all over the country. Um, but that's how you make negative things in lots of languages, including French, Spanish, many others. Why would it then be illogical for a whole community of English speakers? You know, it's not about logic. It's just the people in power don't do that, don't like that. And other groups use it perfectly naturally but we say, we don't like them, so we don't like how they talk. <laughs> so we first found out about uh, your research by talking to one of your students, uh, Jenna, who's in your um, sociophonetics lab and is part of the uh, Oklahoma Accent Research. Um, how important is it to have student involvement in your research, uh, both as obviously learning to be you know, speech pathologists or go into other some kind of linguistics work, and how much do you encourage students to come and be involved, not only in helping you do the research, but helping you really just gather data as far as mm -hmm. the people who come in and be like, oh yeah, I heard about this, I wanna help. It is important. I mean, for practical reasons, like helping out with collecting recordings and um, you know processing uh, data as well. But I do think that like the sociolinguistic things that we've been talking about are important for people to know, um, future speech pathologists, but really anyone in general. You know, if we don't know the kind of biases or negative attitudes we have, we're just not really aware of them, not really thinking about them, 
you know, then we could accidentally be discriminating against people who talk differently from us. And so it's something that I think is valuable. Of course, it's fun. <laughs> you know, people like, like to talk about accents and everybody has a story about, do those people really speak English because I can't understand them? Um, and that's actually an empirical question. You know, if you have all these different dialects, and if you have them as kind of a continuum of understanding, you understand your neighbors, and those neighbors understand their neighbors, and so on and so forth. But eventually, you might get so far apart geographically or linguistically that, you know, you wonder if we are still speaking the same language, if I can't understand that group over there and they can't understand me. You know, that, that's kind of a, another question. Um, so it can be fun to talk about and get students interested in how does language work by talking about things we all have experienced um, and we can all come up with great examples of misunderstandings or how funny it is, that accent, how they talk, or how attractive it is, or, you know, thinking, taking an extra minute to think about, wait, they can't all be mean in that region. They can't all be stupid. Of course, that doesn't make sense. I better rethink for a second here. You know, am I judging too harshly based on how someone talks? The same thing goes for, you know, kind of connecting to the clinical side of things. Another part of my research is looking at how people judge the speech of cochlear implant users. So a cochlear implant is an implanted type of hearing aid. Um, so for, uh, for young children uh, who were born deaf, for example, um, cochlear implants can be given uh, to infants as young as one year old. Um, they can also be given later to children or adults. Uh, they could also be given um, later in life, um, particularly for age-related hearing loss or progressive hearing loss. Um, but if we're talking about uh, kids who are born deaf, they're deaf in the sense, or deaf enough, so to speak, that they can't understand speech. They're not getting enough information to be able to um, use speech for communication. Um, then when a cochlear implant is given, it, it bypasses the mechanics of the ear uh, and sends electrical impulses to the auditory nerve, which the brain interprets as though it were sound. But the information is uh, not perfect. You know, the cochlear implant isn't able to, isn't able to transmit all the information that we can get from natural hearing. Um, so things like uh, pitch are not encoded well. Um, it's hard for CI users to tell pitches apart, to tell voices apart, um, to be able to hear or to be able to distinguish who's talking if there are a bunch of people in a room where the sound is coming from um, because they're relying on a microphone to translate the sounds kind of around them into these electrical impulses. If you uh, grow up with a cochlear implant or you're deaf uh, and then receive a cochlear implant when you're young, you can learn to, your brain can learn to interpret these sounds um, well enough to be able to use speech to communicate. The outcomes are, they vary very widely. <laughs> um, some people are very successful uh, in being able to use the cochlear implant and some have uh, quite a bit of trouble and there's everything in between. Um, but long story short, if you are not getting the full information from speech, you're also, uh, we're going to find it difficult to speak in the same way. 
So if you're not getting all the information, you can't hear all the pieces of each sound. It would be difficult for you to know if you're making the sound in the same way. Um, so the speech of cochlear implant users may sound a bit different. They don't have the auditory feedback from their own voice to be able to compare to the voices they hear around them in order to learn naturally if they're making the same sounds the same way. Uh, so their speech can be a bit different. It can sound accented to a lot of people, or in, in various ways it can sound different. One of my big projects that I'm working on for quite a while uh, is to kind of see how people react to those voices. You know, what kind of snap judgments do we make when we hear um, someone whose speech sounds a little different? We're not sure. People don't usually know why they sound different or how they sound different or where they're from or what kind of accent they have. But still, when people have some sort of accent, we make judgments based on that, snap judgments, first impressions. You know, we can change how we think about the person when we get to know them, of course. But those first impressions can have a big effect, especially if they're strong. So say if you have uh, someone who's had a cochlear implant since they were young, and now they're in college or going into the workforce, and they have a job interview. A job interview is one big first impression. So if we have kind of those snap judgments and we're unaware of why they sound different or what their capabilities are based on that, you know, then they could be inadvertently kind of discriminated against, for example, in, in getting jobs. So are there <laughs> certain words where sounds get left out, sounds get added? My example of that is like, and this is unique to me, I don't pronounce the R in microwave. And I had to, I had to think to say it. I say microwave. Oh, and I have no idea why I do that. And how does that come about? And is it more of a, you know, an individual thing and people kind of pick up on it and it kind of filters through virally, so to speak? Or is it something that varies sometimes by region or by certain dialects? So, uh, some of all of the above. Um, so usually word specific, what you're thinking of as word specific are differences between dialects um, are just words that stand out to you as different. Um, so how people pronounce different words, specific words like this, um, or which words they use for a particular item is one of the things that differentiates dialects. So it's not, it's kind of accent, but also another feature of dialects. Once again, we talk the way our friends talk growing up, you know, especially once we go to school from about, you know, age five or six, we don't talk like our parents anymore. We talk like our friends. And so whatever community you grow up in, if that's how they pronounce nuclear, that's how you do too. And, <laughs> or aluminium, that's a British way. Um, and it can occur in other places, caramel, caramel, um, roof, roof. These are, these are regional, some sub-regional, different areas pronounce it differently, and you just pronounce it the way people around you pronounce it. Um, as for its relation to spelling, well, English spelling is um, a historical remnant. <laughs> so we've all decided to try to keep things spelled basically the same over the centuries, but the spelling system was kind of codified um, in late Middle English 
So the way we spell things is not very related to how we pronounce things today or how we've pronounced things for a couple of centuries. And, and you might, you know, you might think, well, let's update it. Let's have some spelling reform. And the problem with that is that all of these differences that we've been talking about with different dialects, we still all consider all these dialects part of English, whether it's in the UK or Australia or all across the world. And there are all these different ways of pronouncing things in all these different places. Which spelling reform would you use? Would you want to change the spelling to follow how they pronounce things in London? Wouldn't that upset everybody else in England, everybody in the US, everybody in Australia who pronounce things differently? Then the spelling would be even less clear to everyone else. And if we decided, well, we'll just spell things the way we say them, and you spell them the way you say them, then we would lose that kind of ease of communicating using written words where we can't, or if we have difficulty speaking to each other. So kind of the writing system has remained rather similar while the language users have continued to change and we basically have two different systems, our speaking system and a writing system. And it would be rather difficult to bring them in line and still get the benefits that we have of kind of a more unified writing system. But you're saying we should go ahead and just spell through T-H-R-U, right? I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> Our thanks to Dr. Valerie Freeman for joining us to talk about her fascinating research. If you know of any great studies going on in the College of Arts and Sciences, let us know. Email us at pokespodcasts at okstate.edu. And remember, there is no T in podcasts. Or find us on the usual social media networks at okstatecasts. Thank you for listening and interacting. Now we wrap things up as we always do by asking our guest, how do the arts and sciences make the world a better place? Well, I think with social sciences, especially in my area of expertise, um, it gives us a better understanding of how humans function. Um, so if we're talking about communication and social structure, uh, it can help us function better if we know how we work as humans, as, as social groups. Uh, we can make people's lives better, the quality of life better. So you might ask, you know, why would we study language? Why would I want to study people's attitudes? or about accents or dialects or anything about different groups and how we talk. I could say, sure, well, it's fun. It makes Thanksgiving dinner easier because I can talk about something that everyone has some experience with. Um, but we can also use it for sh social benefits. You could say that language is one of the last acceptable forms of discrimination. And you know, as a society, we're, we're trying to eliminate our biases based on who someone is, we're trying not to treat people differently based on you know, how they look or their gender or where they're from or who they love or how their bodies work. But we haven't yet really considered how much we treat people differently based on their language background. And so if we don't know the biases that we have, we don't know if we're doing harm and we can't correct it. Mm -hmm.